There's no place like home. But home is everywhere else. I mean, for everybody else, home is ever, everywhere else. Yeah. The, the thing about it is, is there's no place like home. I mean, if God would say there's no place like home, where would, where would that mean for God? Inside of us. Yeah, you. Us. That's right. Yeah, listen, I think there's something about home. You know how when you, listen, you can go to Ireland, you can go to Tahiti or wherever you want to go. And it's like, man, this is the greatest trip I've ever been on. But when you're driving home, you've you got butterflies in your stomach thinking that's the best place to be. Because there's something about home that has this comfort and allure to it that you can't get anywhere else in the world. Not in the greatest places, looking at the Grand Canyon, anything else. There's something about home that that attracts you, and uh, and I and I think that when we are at home with the Lord, that is going to be the final resting. But and actually, I think that's why people are always looking to improve their home or to find another home that can be home, because there's something about home. We we we're looking for a home, and that home is is something that is out in front of us. We're waiting to like find that that final place where we can actually be at home mm -hmm. and not have to be looking for another home or another home improvement system. Yeah. I mean it, there's a home that we're we're going to and it's going to be good and it's going to be in a glorified body and it's going to be a home that is completely satisfied. And right now we have the first fruits of that home which is the spirit. Yeah. You know, so it yeah, the bosom of the Father. Yeah, is is home. Yes. May I? Oh, forgive me. Am I interrupting? Not at all. Go ahead, Deb. Oh, please, please. I was just gonna say, can you imagine with Jesus when he said he has no place to lay his head, and then when he was raised and we became his body, how? that felt like to your point when you're going home and it's like oh my own bed my own whatever <clears throat> the thrills in him to i have a place to lay my head now forever amen that's what i was thinking when you were talking about how you can go to the grand canyon you can go here you can go there but there's no place like home and i was connecting what michelle said that god's home is our heart and that's how he sees us like all the beauty that's in the world we're the most beautiful thing like yeah. we look at the Grand Canyon and we think wow you know that's amazing or yeah. I don't know I've heard yeah but that's amazing or I like to be outdoors and look at everything and I just God showed me that one day like all the beauty that you see in the world and I think you're the most beautiful thing and, yeah. yeah so anyway. amen go ahead you know, there, there, there are two themes, and both are true at the same time. One is the home as far as the living presence of Christ in our heart, right? Mm -hmm. And the other theme is the home as far as the heavenly one that we look forward to. Sure. So a while back in the last three weeks, Greg just said like these three sentences. I'm not sure if someone else was preaching, and Greg just was saying something beforehand, or he was talking about uh, Joseph in the Old Testament, right? When Joseph's father, that you've been reading Genesis during your sabbatical, and that 
when Joseph's father is asked like how old he was, he says, well, I've been on this pilgrimage for so many years. In other words, you know, the rescue of Joseph's father was not being brought into Egypt with plenty of food. That was not the deal. The deal is it's, it's the heavenly uh, home that he was looking forward to. And Greg mentioned, I thought it was amazing. So often we don't see the big picture, right? We focus in on the grains of sand, but we don't see the beach. As far as, and Greg was saying, oh yeah, uh, God delivered the Israelites into the promised land, but come on. Everyone knows as far as the history books, that place, you know, went into the crapper. It, it wasn't, that's not the big picture that they were delivered into this, you know, uh, the, the promised land. There's a bigger picture, and again, talking about um, Joseph's father. There's a bigger picture out here than, than what we ascribe to. And so Hebrews, which is a long time, people have felt it, it's one of the inspired, uh, like, breathed from God, you know, text, right? And he, so, so it says, um, it was in faith, and talks about, uh, of course, earlier, yes, Abraham was led into the promised land, quote-unquote, but he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. For Abraham, dude, the promised land was not the destination sucker, for Abraham was waiting for the city which God has designed and built, the city with permanent foundations. So they just stayed in tents. Yeah, we got the promised land. But this is not our destination. Yes. This is not a place of arrival. And it was in faith all these persons died. They did not receive the things God had promised, but from a long way off, they saw them and welcomed them. And listen to this. Greg mentioned, like again, um, Joseph's father as far as pilgrimage. Well, look, this is inspired word of God. This word of God knows things that and witnessed things that we did we have not and admitted openly that they were foreigners and refugees on earth. So it wasn't just Joseph's father. It's like they, these people, admitted openly, whoever, how old are you? They admitted openly as far as that they were foreigners and refugees on earth. And so instead it was a better country. They longed for the heavenly country. And so, so like Bible interpretation, sort of like 101, when you see a therefore, what is the therefore? In other words, like, therefore, in other words, like, because of this huge thing, then the output is this, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and so is like, therefore. It was a better country than they longed for, the heavenly one. And so, therefore, God is not ashamed for them to call him their God, because he has prepared a city for them. Now, don't get me wrong. I am pre-infancy as far as really seeing with my eyes my real home. My wife is farther along in this journey as far as, but it's a key part of uh, the whole gig is, is seeing, oh, it's not, and I don't want to start of one. It's not, it's more about, well, God is stronger than COVID or I can handle snakes or whatever. It's, there's something much, much bigger at the foundation of things. That, that God, our real home, has promised us uh, a heavenly home. And to really be believers in the sense of 
to, to see the unseen. So am I rambling in circles or is any of this making any sense? Well, I mean, listen, you're just talking about the basic truth that the fathers all believed in, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they talked about them. Um, that's a hard saying for the majority of the modern church, sadly. Right. But yeah, I mean, you just described the hope of the gospel, right? Which is that we see the heavenly country and it's remarkable what it says there that it has a permanent foundation, yes. right? God's created for us a city that has a permanent foundation, which means it can't be shaken, right? And, and really, the, the gospel is set to put our eyes on that. And what happens is, is when our eyes are fixed on that, the heavenly city that God has prepared with permanent foundations, that's what sustains us as that's what sustains us in our pilgrimage on this earth, yes. which is what it is. It's a pilgrimage. Yep. Sadly, most people are not living as if this is a pilgrimage in the <laughs> sense that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. They're living as if the kingdom of God is about how we're going to make a permanent foundation right in this place. Yes. Right? And we're going to infiltrate all the systems of this place. And we're going to build a permanent foundation under the systems of this place. Yeah. Which, really, if we say it for what it is, they have good intentions, but that's sin, mm -hmm. is what that is. That's true. That is sin, right? The government is upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And, and so, as believers, we're designed to come together and talk about the government that's upon his shoulders, right? And it's remarkable what Jacob says. It's remarkable that he says it like that. And you could ask yourself, what, is, what did that guy see that caused him to say that to Pharaoh? Because Pharaoh didn't ask him about no pilgrimage. Pharaoh didn't ask him about no heavenly country. Yep. He just asked him, how many years? Yep. You been, bro? Like, how old are you? <laughs> just wanting to know, because, I mean, Jacob's looking older in age. How old are you, bro? And what does he say? <laughs> he goes into his pilgrimage. It's remarkable that he says it that way. And it's remarkable, those verses that you read when your eyes have been opened to that and what all the fathers looked to, right? And, and one of the things that has hurt the modern-day body of Christ, and, and for a long time now, it's not just some new thing. It, it's, it's, reaching, it's reaching its head. One of the things that's hurt the, the modern-day church is we have not been busy with the faith that faithful Abraham was busy with or that Isaac, or that Jacob, or that David, or any of the patriarchs. We, we haven't been dancing with the same thing they were dancing with. And it's like a massive reformation needs to occur because the church has been taught as if it's not a pilgrimage. That, right. that this world is our home, and now we got to establish the kingdom in our home. That's, that's what we've been living with. Now listen, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. If that's what you think, you're going to be tormented every time you see this world going into the crapper. Yep. And you know what that's going to compel you to do? Take up a sword. Mm -hmm. Right. No doubt. Right. And then you'll take the verse that, that talks about up until this time, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent try to take it by force. You'll actually quote that verse as if it's good to be violent and to try to take the kingdom by force. <laughs> You'll actually start preaching as if that's the thing to do. How we got to take up arms now and fight. Right? And it's like, you, if that's what your mind is busy with, you haven't seen the heavenly country that's been prepared. That's right. You haven't seen the permanent foundation that's there. 
You haven't seen what God's done in Jesus. You have no idea what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, believed. It's so beautiful what you said there. Abraham went into the promised land, and it makes a point. The author of Hebrews makes a point, but yet he dwelled in tents. That's right. And the promised land was never the thing. It was a sign and a wonder testifying of the heavenly country. Yes. Right? And we, we so lust after the sign and the wonder, man, that we, we completely lose sight of the only sign, which is that Jesus in the belly of the Jonah's whale coming out of the grave. And, and to Brandy's point, it's also a sign and wonder of the indwelling God loving and never abandoning Abraham. No, absolutely in, in not. His heart of hearts. You, you, you know. Abs- absolutely not. And and so one of the things that that I spent so much time focusing on is what did those guys believe? What did the apostles believe? What did they teach? Why did they teach it? And if you're honest with yourself as ministers or, or people in the body of Christ, if you're honest with yourself, you'd have to say, I don't think I'm saying the same thing they're saying. I don't think we're believing the same thing they're believing. We pluck out verses out of context and we try to establish our own doctrines. And we don't weigh it in light of the, the spirit of truth. Now, all things are given for us to enjoy. So you can enjoy your life on this earth. But I promise you, the power to enjoy your life on the earth is for your eyes to be fixed on the heavenly country and the tabernacle you have in heaven that hasn't been made with the hands of a man. Amen. Speaking of the immortal body of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's what will cause you to enjoy the life you have here. Otherwise, you're just trying to work the life you have here to yes. produce the joy that God has promised to produce in you, mm-hmm. right? And now, yeah, you're, work, you're striving with angst to work this, to work this, to try to produce that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And you're missing the whole point. I mean, even like Abraham. Abraham had everything. He saw the land that was flowing with milk and honey, but it came to the place where they're like, man, there, there, there's, there's too much of us here. Abraham wasn't like, well, no, this is my land. We're going to fight for it. Abraham said, Lot, you choose whatever land you want. Why did he do that? Why did he fight for it? There's this beautiful song I'm going to pray to today it's called uh promised land promised land yeah and it's this guy he's an english-speaking guy and he's the beginning of the song is he's filled with sorrow <coughs> and he's just talking about all the calamity and, and suffering and hard times he's experienced in this world and in this life and the video is a, a cool picture of people with hard hats and coal mines like people working hard right and the guy's basically singing still i wonder Yes, I wonder, where's my promised land? And the guy's just sorrowful, thinking of his life here. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the song, he, it, it, it shifts into him standing before God. And he starts echoing out of his mouth, God's my promised land. Ooh. And the whole thing changed. You see, Abraham knew that God was his promised land. And not some physical place. Right? He saw that it was a sign and a wonder that testified of the real promised land. And that's what sustained Abraham. That's what sustained Isaac. That's what sustained Jacob. That's what sustained all the patriarchs. That's what sustained all of them, right? That faith, that faith sustained them, right? Their faithfulness didn't sustain them. 
that faith sustained them. And even in the Greek, the word faithful, we read that to talk about how great they are. But the word faithful speaks of them standing in awe of God's faithfulness towards them. It speaks of them standing in awe of God's ability to uh, heal dead flesh. It speaks of them standing in awe of the God who can raise the dead, and not even just raise the dead, but can raise them up from the grave, having consumed death to the uttermost, where it can never exist anymore. That's what it's talking about. That's what it's saying these guys saw. These guys were all strengthened by the faith of God, right? Having not even seen yet what was going to go down. Well, listen, we've seen what was going to go down because God raised Jesus from the dead in a glorified immortal body that can never taste death again. Now, we receive strength from that faith. That is the faith. That's the faith they saw. Jesus said Abraham did what? Abraham was hoping for a physical country. And it says Abraham saw, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, it says. Right in the same context, Jesus says, if you were the children of Abraham, mm -hmm. you would do the work of Abraham. Mm -hmm. What do you think the work of Abraham is? Believing in his almighty father. And we all think the work of Abraham is that he obeyed. Mm -hmm. right. And we def define o o obeying as he was going to offer Isaac. Working the system. That, that's how we define it. That's how it's taught in the church, isn't it? If we could just step out like Abraham. But what did Jesus say about the work of Abraham? He saw my day and rejoiced. Hebrews would come and say that Abraham reckoned that God could even raise the dead. That's how he saw his day. That's how he saw his day. Yep. Exactly. And I mean, if you look at it, you know, everything the Lord promised him that he'd be father of many nations, he didn't, he didn't see that. But he still just believed. Yes, ma'am. I have such a different perspective now on, like, what it means to believe. Like, it used to be when I would sit in churches and hear that, I'd be like, ooh, like, like you, like you have to, like, like strain the juice out, out of a pomegranate seed. That's what it felt like. Like, like such a hard work to believe. And now I look at it as how you said about, um, I don't know, sometime you had talked about what it meant to blaspheme God and how people were accusing God of all this wrongdoing. And, and now I see, um, like, believe as the opposite of that. And, like, believing in like the goodness of God and like that is what uh, needs to be done to you know um, to just just my own journey um, I, I was so like focused on my life turning out a particular way and I felt like I was spinning my wheels I'd go to church and before I came here and it'd be like okay you know this week you need to work on this like oh okay if I could just like manipulate this and you know, my life will be good. And then the end of the week, either I, I, two things can happen. Either you do a good job of that and still doesn't work. So then you're like, well, now what, you know, 
now what? And they're like, oh, we'll do this now. You know, it's, it's this thing now you have to work on. And you're like, oh, okay, let me set to work and get all that right. Or you do a bad job and you're like, man, if I could just get this thing right and constantly spinning my wheels, not realizing that the person who had the answers for me, I didn't trust. And I didn't know how to trust because I thought he was causing the chaos in my life. And I was so limited in thinking that, oh, God's going to, God's going to, you know, um, get my marriage together and, and that's my future. That was the promised land for me, you know. And all this time I had such a limited view and now what has happened with me is God has made me completely content and like you said, he's shown me that he's my promised land. It's like, wow, that's so much greater than sitting there wrestling about, well, who am I going to marry? Like my, my kids, when they were little, they, um, that you know, they had this idea of, you know, husband and wife or whatever. And he, my son uh, tells my friend, he's, you know, five years old. He's like, um, I think I'm going to marry my sister. <laughs> and she's like, he's like, you can't marry your sister. And, and he's like, well, who am I going to marry? <laughs> like, I have to have a wife. It's going to be really hard. <laughs> You're the only girl I like. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of how I felt. Like, well, crap, if this doesn't work out, what the heck am I going to do? You know. And Sometimes we don't understand our view yeah. of another person being our promised land is the weight that is destroying yeah. the relationship mm-hmm. or keeping us from having the relationship. Mm-hmm. And many times we don't understand that the thing that can actually heal the relationship or bring us into a healthy relationship is us no longer looking at the other person as if they are our promised land or if happiness is found on the other side of that then you can actually start enjoying what's there and the tension that maybe came to the relationship that caused the relationship to buckle and destroy it a lot of times has a lot to do with both people looking to be made whole by the other person and they bring this heaviness into this relationship that was never supposed to be that way. And then they crush each other. And then because of all the pain they feel at the crushing of each other, they end up hating each other and thinking the other one's the problem. And listen, man, no, the problem is, is that both of you came in with a corrupted view of marriage. And it was neither of your fault because you didn't come up with that idea on your own. But you were born into a world that taught you that. I tell little girls all the time, man, from the time they're this little, all the time, where's Prince Charming? Where's Prince Charming? You're told all the time you're going to find Prince Charming, and Prince Charming's going to make everything better. All the things you look at in the the fairy tales and, and everything, Prince Charming will make you whole. Listen, there might be Prince Charming, but it's God. Right? There is no man that can make you whole, ladies. And if you think that there is, listen, in the day you find a man, uh, he's going to buckle under the weight of that, right? And Because he can't make you whole. And he's going to look at you to make him whole. And he's going to do the same thing. It's a wicked cycle that the world does, right? Helpmate. The, the, the spouses are helpmates for each other, meaning they're not designed to be complete in one another, but they're designed to share life with one another and remind each other that they're made whole in God. And then you can come together and actually be a blessing to one another right? Then you could come together and actually enjoy life together because you're not each trying to get the other one to take up your life. Mm -hmm. 
right? Because listen, if you're trying to get somebody else to take up your life, they can't even take up their own life. I mean, listen, Jesus said a powerful thing. He said, I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again, right? You want to know why we look to the Lord Jesus? Because he's God. He can take up his own life. His life does stand up. So he can take up our life. But another human being cannot take up your life. And we're, we're so programmed to look to other people that we, we, we it, it breaks my heart for relationships. It's nearly impossible to be married and stay married in today's day and age. And what I want to say is with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. That's the only way for it to even occur is through that kind of dynamic where you're not looking to the other one for anything. This messes people up and they don't want to hear it when I do marriage counseling. I don't look to Becky for nothing. I just don't. That don't mean Becky don't do stuff. That don't mean it's not nice when she does stuff. That don't mean that it doesn't bless my socks off when she does stuff and I don't get a big smile and I'm like, wow. But man, I'm not living every day thinking of what I need from Becky Mm -hmm. or thinking of what can I get from Becky or thinking of any of that. Because I promise you, if you are, you're going to spend all your days scrutinizing their behavior. And you will find things that are jacked up. (laughs) And you will find things that ain't right. And you will find them falling short in the area of doing what you need. (laughs) You will. And I promise you, if you're looking at them that way, all of a sudden what's going to be born in you is that they're the enemy. And you're going to start despising them. You're going to start despising the way they talk, the way they walk, everything. You're just going to hate them. And man, it ought not be that way for for people. And it's one of the things that happened at the fall when, when God told Eve what would happen because you ate from this tree. And what he told Adam, what will happen because you ate from this tree. The man is all the time looking at the woman, trying to find the evidence that he is as he ought to be. The man is all the time wanting to be justified by beholding the woman and beholding in her enough of her good pleasure with him that he feels like I am. And the woman is doing the same thing. She's trying to find the evidence that she's a good woman or a good wife or as she ought to be by beholding the man and by beholding enough acceptance in the man with her that she can be persuaded that I am, right? And that, listen, man, that sends it off into a wicked, wicked cycle of destruction and, and burden. And it can only produce hatred and bitterness and envy and backbiting. And um, that's why you see the chasm in relationships. I think my parents' generation have much more willpower than the current generation. Because I think my parents' generation could look and say, well, even if things go sideways, we're going to be married. Because we said we would. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, they take that stuff seriously. Like, my dad, no, they take it seriously. Well, today's day and age, we don't have that kind of willpower. Right? It's like, no, no, no. This thing is so crooked and broken that, you know what? (laughs) Yeah. Sayonara. (laughs) Right? But both ways, I mean, you could say there's something to be said for grit in your teeth, I guess. But neither way is born from above. Right? Neither way is what God intended. Right? God didn't intend for you to have to grit your teeth to stay married. He didn't intend for you to have to will, use your willpower. Right? And He didn't intend for you to end up hating the one you said you loved. 
right? He, he didn't intend for that. He didn't intend for there to be so much pain that you couldn't even stand to be around each other. And so the question we, we want to ask ourselves in the realm of relationships is what does it look like for a relationship to be born from above? What does it look like for a man and woman to dwell or cohabitate together when it's from above? What does that look like, the way they relate to each other? What does it look like, right? And um, we've made idols out of our spouses. And um, then we get angry when they, they can't complete us. And it sounds romantic, doesn't it? I mean, we watch Jerry Maguire. Listen, I'm a romantic. I really am. What I realized is I was longing after God, right? And I didn't know it. That desire that I had, I was longing after God. And that's not to say I did not find a good thing when I found Becky. I found a great thing when I found Becky. You guys hear me talk about that Becky all the time, right? But listen, that, that was not the good thing. And, and so the romanticism that's in the world, it really connects with our heart because we are actually longing after that. The thing is, we can only get it from God. And so, man, you put on that Jerry Maguire movie, and they put in that music in the background, right? And he comes running in the door, and he gives this long speech about all this stuff. You complete me. And everybody's like, yes, yes, right? And it's what we don't realize, we're, we're, so, we're so caught up in the romanticism, and the romanticism is good, right? And your spouse can be a sign and a wonder of that, but not that itself. Right? It can serve to remind you, which is what relationships are supposed to do. But we lose sight of the fact that it's just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It looks good for food. It looks like it's wise about the way unto a happy life. Right? It looks like it's the way. I remember the guy who ordained me, man. You could see that, I mean, him and his wife are both lovely people. And they stayed married until uh, the day he passed away. Um, but you could also see that they had a lot of angst in their relationship for whatever reason. I don't blame either one of them, but they, they did a Valentine's Day meeting for the young married couples in the church, which Becky and I were one of the young married couples. We were like 25 and 26, and that's how old the, the rest of them were. Well, in the traditional sense, the women separated and went upstairs, and we're in Colorado, so they all have basements. The men separated and went downstairs. And I'm waiting for these powerful nuggets of truth right about how we just gonna love life and how we gonna come together as one body and one flesh and what does marriage look like from above because i like to be taught of the lord i want to be taught i don't mean told what to do i mean taught of the faith you guys notice what we're talking about here today is just putting the truth on display we're not talking about what we need to do we're just talking about what life looks like from above so we can behold it and it can work in our hearts but that guy <laughs> he only said let's see I think he said five words. We'll count them after I said it. He was sitting in the front at a, behind a desk, and we were all sitting there waiting. This was a mighty man of God, a guy planted like thousands of churches all over the world, Russia, Africa, everywhere. He leaned in. His face got long <laughs> and real serious. He said, listen, guys, <laughs> if your wife's not happy, you'll never be happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he said. That was it. If your wife's not happy, you'll never be happy. Nine words. That was the conference. That was it. Did you have to pay for it? No, 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 no. We were in the church. We didn't pay any money. That's a lot of money for 
I didn't even, you know what? I was I was so I was so in awestruck by that that I didn't even ask Becky what the the women had to say. Mm-hmm. But I could just imagine <laughs> that what his wife probably said was, "Listen, if you can get your wa- your husband to realize, he'll never be happy unless you're happy." <laughs> Then you can be happy. <laughs> I, have, I have a funny story I can add to that. Go ahead. Go. So we're talking about, you know, Brandy talking about the life of the indwelling Christ as far as, um, and so both of my wife's parents have passed on and they were, if not the most incredible two humans I've ever met, then among the top two humans I had never, I ever met. But see, there's this fraud that's portrayed as far as marriage and life and its elixir. So whenever my wife went to a wedding with her mother, it was like really humiliating because my wife's mother would be weeping during the marriage ceremony with the idea of these suckers have no idea <laughs> what, what this thing is about, what this journey that they're starting on. And she would be weeping, and course Sue is sitting next to her, is like, oh, as far as, uh, but she had, you know, 2020 vision, dude. It's the indwelling of the living Christ, is the elixir, is the perfume of life, is the essence of life, you know. Listen, and not to discourage people from getting married. We say these things so that you could enjoy marriage from the foundation that God intended for it to be, mm-hmm. instead of from the foundation that the world has tried to create it to be. Yeah. See, the world knoweth not God. Okay? So what that means is, is everything God has given that we could enjoy and share in, has been turned into what will make you whole, right? And so God never gave marriage so that we could be made whole. He gave marriage so that we could have someone to share life with and that could serve as a reminder to us of the God who makes whole, right? And what the world does is it takes everything and twists it into that which will make you whole because it doesn't know God's the one that makes you whole. And it, it teaches justification in everything God just gave to enjoy, Instead of justification in God and God alone, meaning that God will justify you by the strength in his hand, right? So instead of just marriage being something, you come together and say, I want to share life with these people, right? Because when you think of sharing life with someone, you know, you also think of, I'm going to cry with them. You know what? If my wife cries and she's sad and I don't blame myself, (laughs) it's easy for me to cry with her and to hold her and be a comfort to her. But if every time my wife has a hard time, I take it personally and see it as a sign that I'm not justified, listen, I might try and make everything better for her for a while. But eventually what's coming is that woman's never happy. And you start blaming her and you start hating her. And you're no longer sharing life. Right? But from the perspective of sharing life, man, when my wife cries now, I no longer take it as a personal sign that I'm some SOB, right? That doesn't mean I do everything perfectly. If I accidentally, I do, I might mess up innocently or I might do something that hurt her feelings, but I did it innocently where I'm not trying to hurt her feelings. And of course I would apologize, but I'm talking on a larger scale, man. And the same thing with wives, 
right? If your husband's having a hard time, if you're just sharing life together, and you know God's the one that, that makes him whole, you can weep with him and be sorrowful with him when he grieves. And you can actually come together and, and com- be, be comforted by one another by remembering the God of all comfort, right? But if you're taking it personally, their grief and their hard time, and you now take it upon yourself to set them free, listen, what's going to end up coming is first stress and angst. And what it will so- shortly morph into is peace is found on the other side of getting away from them, <laughs> right? And it it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way, and so that the the what when I, I love doing wedding ceremonies because I love pointing people to the truth because it's the only way that the marriage can can get by. And one of the things I do in every single marriage ceremony is when the 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 husband and the wife say their vows or they if they don't have their own vows and I lead them in some vows, um, I immediately follow it up with God's vow to them and God's vow to their marriage. Because I don't want them to walk away with their eyes fixed on one another as if salvation is found in one another or in their union together. Their their union together, them coming together, if you look at what marriage was all about, it's actually supposed to be a testimony in the earth of the God who makes whole. That's what a marriage is actually supposed to testify of. And so it's two people coming together, declaring their love for one another from the foundation of them knowing God's love for them, right? And them being set free to give themselves over into one another's arms because they've had their desire for love satisfied in the God of all glory, right? You're actually not free to love someone else unless you've had your desire to be loved satisfied first. You're not dwelling in freedom there. And so God's idea is I'm going to fill this man up so full of my love. I'm going to satisfy this man's deepest desire for love so much that it's going to set him free to pour himself out for the woman. And I'm going to set this woman free. I'm going to satisfy the deepest desire in this woman to be loved and accepted and nurtured. I'm going to satisfy it so much that she's not looking to get it from him, that she's going to be free to just pour herself out for him. And in that dynamic, you have the husband loving the wife and the wife loving the husband, right? And in that dynamic is the way, the only way marriage can actually work. It, it's the only way, right? It's, it's the only way. The problem is most, most of us have gotten married not having that desire already satisfied in the God of all glory, right? Mm-hmm. And looking to find it satisfied in one another, right? We did it innocently, though, yeah. Yeah. right? Well, that's, it, why, it, that's, that's why at most weddings, you, they read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, what is love? What does love look like? And we think it is, well, I have to have that love for that person. And the other person says, well, I have to have that love for that person. And if we have that love for one another, it'll work out. And that is innocent. I mean, that, that, and that actually looks good. But 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 13 is about God's love for us. What, what is God's love for us as an individual look like? And once you possess that love, you have the elements that are required to have a good marriage. Yeah. When that love abides in you, mm-hmm. not in what you're doing for other people, but when it abides in you and you're at rest in that love, 
then you can have a relationship. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I don't, I wake up daily seeking satisfaction in God because I want to be able to give myself fully over into my wife's arms, right? I do. I, I want that, right? I want to, I want to find the God kind of love born in me. And, and I, I realize that's what Ephesians is talking about. It's me finding my desire to be loved and fully accepted and fully known in God. And then what happens is that's the only way you can fully give yourself over. That's the only way you can lay down your life. You can't lay down your life for somebody else if you're looking for your need to be loved from them. You're looking for them to lay down their life for you is what you're doing. Right? If you're looking to somebody else to lay down their life for you, I promise you, you ain't laying down your life for them. Mm-hmm. And so, if the marriage comes together, how can both people lay down their life for one another? In the world's view, it's impossible. Because one of them is looking to the other one to do it. And the other one's looking to them to do it. And now it's this big tug of war. Right? The only way that it can happen is for them to find the God that laid down his life for them. <laughs> Right? You want to be so loved that someone will lay down their life for you. Well, you find that love in the God who laid down his life for you. That he'd rather take your death into himself than let you die. Now, when you find that desire satisfied in you, it sets you free. And you don't look at a principle on the wall that says you're supposed to lay down your life for others or for your spouse. You just find it born in you. And you find yourself doing it. And then for the, the other spouse, if they also find their, satis- their desire for love to be satisfied, because that's really what you want, right? Tell, just be honest. How good does it feel if you think your spouse laid down their life for you? How good does it feel? Feels right, doesn't it? You feel loved and cherished, don't you? Listen, your spouse may lay down their life for you sometimes, but it's a sign and a wonder testifying of the God that has laid down his life for you. And that desire that you have, that thing you feel on the inside, listen, it can only really be satisfied by God. And what will happen is when it's satisfied by God, you are now ripe for a relationship or to participate in a relationship that's born from above. Because you'll find both people in the relationship giving themselves over fully into each other's arms. I.e., you find the God that laid down his life born inside of each of them. And you find each of them all the time laying down their life for the other. Right? That, with the world, that's impossible. That. that is impossible. Right? And the church not understanding that dynamic has made a lot of relationships worse. Because for so long, the church's idea is willpower. Right? I don't know, this is what you got to do. Instead of just teaching what the scriptures actually teach about God and love and marriage. Because if you would just teach people what the scriptures actually say about God and love and marriage you would actually find that would be health and healing to relationships. It would be health and healing to unions, to marriages, right? Does that make any sense? People understand that, right? It's, it's a hard saying, but it's just the truth. It's the truth that sets you free. It's just the truth. That's the only foundation you can be free to actually love, right? The way God loves. It's, it's the only way. It's what Paul, you go read Ephesians, I think it's chapter 4. Is it chapter 4 or chapter 5 where he talks about husbands love your wives and wives love your husbands? Submit unto one another. What do, you, what do you think it means to submit unto one another? What do you think Paul's talking about there? He's talking about giving yourselves fully over into each other's arms, right? I promise you, 
that ain't happening unless you first found your desire for love satisfied in God. Completely. That's the and Paul says that we love because He first loved us. That's right. Not for, you know, it didn't come from us. Right. That's right. You're not going to give that up if you're seeing yourself as having something to lose. That's right. Which yes. is where Jesus was coming from in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if they ask for your coat, give them your club too. Well, when you understand that there's nothing that can take away from my life, then you're more than willing to hand that over. Okay. I love the, the wise Jim Dixon. <laughs> what does he say? It's like two ticks and no dog. <laughs> <laughs> It is true. If you don't think your cup is runneth over, you're trying to suck something out of the people around you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you want it's not that you've gone over the corner and nefariously calculated that's what you're going to do. That's just what's going down inside of you, and you don't even know it yet, right? You're just looking for that, and and. That's what, what happens in relationships that, that go sideways. Like, like Matt said, I got nothing to gain. I'm not trying to gain something from this. I'm trying to share something with them, right? I'm not trying to gain something from them. I'm trying to share in something with them, right? Because when I look in their face, I see beauty. When I look in their face, I see, man, we can really enjoy sharing in this thing together, Right? That's, that's what it is. And there's the spirit love, and there's the flesh love, but the flesh love is phony. So if a person were to analyze, okay, you may not know subconsciously why you're giving her flowers, but if you were to be able to understand your deepest psyche, you're probably giving her flowers with what collateral payback you may get from that transaction. And so that's flesh love, which is phony love. We may not even be aware of our ulterior motives, but there's spirit love, which a lot of times Christ will do things, and we don't, it's like, gosh, it's almost like an out-of-body thing. It's like Christ doing that through me. It's kind of like a, kind of like a surprise where, where there's real love, there's real life. Does that make any sense? Absolutely, man. I, go ahead. I was trying to say earlier, like, for me, that marriage was just an example, like Abraham with the promised land. Like, that was an example. I had such a limited viewpoint of what God could do for me. And I think what healed my heart and set me free from that is understanding that that word believing God was not about straining to believe him for this one thing, but actually just beginning to see his goodness towards me and towards my life and his love for me. And I think coming here really help with that like to begin to see like no God's not causing this and you know he only wants the best for you and and just allowing him to persuade my heart about how he sees me and how he sees my life and and I had such a limited viewpoint of like my kids like what am I going to do in this situation I had no it never entered my mind that God can make me completely content in whatever situation and open my eyes to all the beauty around me that he had placed and just all the goodness and I'm sure that's something of what Abraham felt too like in a tent he could see all these great things that if you have everything you oftentimes can't see because those things can't 
give you what you're wanting them to give you. Yeah, that's a beautiful testimony of the faith. You're exactly right. What happened was you stopped trying to believe four things, and you yeah. started seeing faith was that I have everything in God. And then you started experiencing the contentment that comes from that, right? Because you can't experience contentment if you're busy looking around you, yeah. right, at circumstances and things. And Paul says a powerful thing when he says, I learned to be content in all things, whether I abound or whether I'm abased. And I preached a message like 10 years ago called The Secret to the Apostle Paul's Contentment. And really what it's saying there is that he found that everything he actually desired was contained in God. And so whether he was abased, he still found contentment because if things are way down here, everything I desire is found in God. So I'm content because here's God. And if things are abounding, listen, I'm still dwelling in a place of contentment because I see everything I desire isn't found in the bountifulness that I can experience in this world. It's still found in God. And that's the greatest testimony of faith. You're right. You're put to rest. Your heart was satisfied, right? You found satisfaction in the truth. I can definitely relate to what you're talking about with the strain of the believing, though. And as the Lord started bringing me out of that, He started ministering to me. He's like, you've got this thing twisted. He said, believing in faith, is, it's simply a persuasion of the heart. And the illustration he gave me, he said, he said, picture a man courting a woman. He said, in that courtship, he's going to say things in such a way and he's going to behave himself in such a way as to persuade her heart that he would make her a good husband. And in that entire process, the only thing that's required of her is that she makes herself available to be persuaded. I know that's really been the beautiful thing. It's just coming here, just and I'm such a glutton for hard work. You know, like I was a straight A student. Oh, okay, you give me this thing. I'm gonna okay. All right, I got it. I'm gonna do it, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make an A. I'm gonna make you proud, and then life threw at me kids, and then this you know craziness, and it was like oh wow, you know, and then people telling me, oh, go do this, you know, oh, okay, all right, I'm going to do that, and, you know, I'm such a glutton for that, and it just... It was easy to see, you're like, yes, I can work it. Oh, yeah, Yeah. I can do that. (laughs) Man. Look at your ability, yes, this is pretty good. I just, man, I I don't know, like, where I would be. You and all of us, (laughs) right? Without just understanding, changing that understanding, like, I think I even had a dream one time where, like, I was in a church... And it was divided, and I was on one side, and I was trying to tell the people on the other side, like, you don't have to live with this daily torment of wondering why everything you're doing is, like, making, is, like, failing, or, like, why you're not doing, or, like, just that torment that I had, like, daily, like, you're not doing enough, you're not good enough, you're not, like, that, you know, treadmill, like, um, or if you just prayed more, and you just had your quiet time, you know, like, my niece posted about, you know, some post about um, uh, some woman put, you know, just all these statements about how, why you should make time for God. And here my niece says she's got two babies and probably her only peaceful time is like just 10 minutes before a baby wakes up. And then, you know, people are making her feel like if she's not making time to like sit there and read her Bible whenever her eyes are probably closing that she's failing God somehow or she doesn't really love God and it's just crazy to me but anyway so now I I see things totally different where 
it's it's just a matter of like Matt said, just being available to And God can be present with you in whatever chaos you find yourself in, right? So you you can go off and get quiet with the Lord. But in the day, you can't find yourself in a situation where you're able to be quiet. That doesn't now mean that you're far from God or that he's far from you. God is not at the mercy of you finding a quiet place, right? God can create a quiet place inside of your heart in the midst of all chaos, right? And so it's it's like understanding the God that's with you in, in all things. And what happens is, is your heart can be caught up in God is always present. And what happens is, is you can have fellowship with God even as you're in the midst of all types of craziness just by having eyes to, to see that he's present. And you can find yourself thinking with God about the chaos that you're going through. You can find yourself talking out loud with God about the kids and raising the kids and the hecticness you feel. And the, you find like your best friend is there all the time, yeah. right? We've, we've isolated God to this place where unless you go have quiet time with God, you're not being with God and you don't love God, like you said, yeah. right? You can, you can feel like you're at home yeah. all the time. That, yeah. That's exactly that's right. Bingo. That's exactly right. And that's, listen, that's what we ought to be teaching people. If, if See, what happens is we start with the premise. It's good to be with God. It's good to hang out with God. It's good to spend time with God. I think we would all agree with that, right? Yeah. But the problem is then what we want to teach in light of saying that that's good, yeah. right? You got to go here, go there, to find, you know, find him. Right? And instead of coming with the truth, because if you came with the truth about that, it would cause people to be hanging out with God. To <laughs> you, want to. to yeah. Not even just to want to. They, they would be, right? If you came with the truth, them dwelling in the truth would be dwelling with God. Hanging out with God. This is hanging out with God. We're just talking about the truth. And if you came and told a person who was trying to raise a bunch of kids and, and didn't feel like they had any time and still trying to figure out how to be a wife or a spouse to a husband and a mom, and you come and told her about the God that's always present and the God that's always there, then right. she would be hanging out with God in the midst of all the chaos. Right? Yeah. right? right. It, that's, she'd be immersed in the God that has immersed himself with her. Right? And we, we it, it, listen, people mean well, they just don't know God. We got yeah. to wrap it up because um, no one's going to be here today with Matt and I messing with that yeah. stuff in the back. My mom is injured. My dad is injured. Um, and my wife is injured. So, um, yeah, we're left to try and set everything well, up. Well, thank you for the gift of this morning.